Support for Kansas City Today comes from Grandma's Office Catering, delivering made-from-scratch hot meals and individual boxed lunches for fast distribution to offices, warehouses, and factories, even on nights and weekends. Details are at grandmascatering.com. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. Today is Friday, November 17th. Coming up, Kansas City commuters have enjoyed free bus rides for the past few years. But now the Regional Transit Agency is studying whether that program can continue. The agency was is kind of looking at a funding gap in terms of lost revenues. So right now they're looking for more sustainable long-term funding sources. More on the state of public transit in Kansas City. Plus, there are more doctors now than a decade ago, but many communities in Kansas and Missouri are still facing major health care shortages. Medical schools are trying to close the gap with the next generation of doctors. And if they take their medical training there, they're more likely to practice clinical medicine after all of their training is accomplished. So the same thing uh, goes here in our Kansas City campus. But first, some headlines. Two transgender boys are suing the University of Missouri for no longer providing gender-affirming health care. KCUR's Noah Taborda reports they argue the decision was unconstitutional. The university announced in August it would no longer provide puberty blockers and hormones to minors for gender transition. This followed a new Missouri law banning transgender minors from beginning gender-affirming care, although a provision allows those already receiving treatment to continue doing so. The Boone County adolescents allege halting transgender minors' prescriptions is discrimination based on sex and disability status. The boy's attorney says gender dysphoria is a disability because it is, quote, a physical impairment that substantially limits major life activities. The university told the Missouri Independent that its attorneys are reviewing the lawsuit but have no comment. The Kansas City Public Schools Board will ask voters to approve a bond measure in 2025. KCUR's Jody Fortino reports. The district wants to address its aging buildings and maintenance needs. It had to end classes early during an August heat wave noting many of its high schools don't have air conditioning units in all classrooms. Superintendent Jennifer Collier said it's been 50 years since voters approved a bond. Over those decades, our schools have accumulated over $400 million of deferred maintenance. And it's time now for us to make a change. The district will assess school conditions and student needs over the next few months and offer opportunities for community feedback. Kansas City has received a perfect score from the Human Rights Campaign's Municipal Equality Index, which looks at how inclusive city policies and services are for LGBTQ plus people. In contrast, Clever Real Estate Group has ranked Kansas City as one of the 10 least LGBTQ friendly U.S. cities due to anti-trans legislation and a lack of anti-discrimination laws, both at the state level. Justice Horn, chair of the LGBTQ Commission of Kansas City, says the city deserves credit for being a sanctuary for queer people, even while the state is hostile. Municipal law can only go so far. Um, And I really want people to understand that. And it's sad that we have to operate in a state where our really only governmental allies is our municipal government. Despite the perfect score, the Human Rights Campaign says Kansas City is lacking in services to LGBTQ youth and queer unhoused people and does not have transgender-inclusive health care benefits for city employees. We'll be back after this.
Kansas City buses have been free to ride since 2020. But in the past three years, the local transit agency has lost riders and cut services because of the pandemic and has struggled financially, too. Now it's considering bringing back bus fares. KCUR's Madeline Fox sat down with reporter Salisa Kalakal to talk about why and what that might look like. So, Salisa, how is the Kansas City Area Transportation Authority funded? Yeah, so they get funding from different areas. They get funding from the federal government. IRIS and Ride KC Freedom are basically the agency's microtransit services, almost like a taxi. You call a car, car comes to get you, takes you to your destination. Those are not free. They also get uh, local funding from local governments. Kansas City, Missouri is actually the largest uh, local contributor uh, to the KCATA, and they do that by way of the three-eighth cent sales tax that just got renewed by voters uh, earlier this month and the half-cent mass public transit tax. So they're actually the only local governments to contribute Uh, like sales tax collection money, and they are by far the largest contributor in local, uh, local money to the KCATA. So what are the specific financial pressures on the agency now? How has that changed? Yeah, so when revenue from buses was being collected, it made up anywhere between 7 to 12 percent of the agency's revenue. In 2019, the last full year that uh, the agency collected passenger fare, it collected about $8.8 million. And when the KCATA and Kansas City, Missouri agreed to eliminate bus fare, uh, Kansas City said that it would subsidize a portion of the lost revenue to the tune of about $4.8 million. Um, And that money comes from the half-cent sales tax that I mentioned earlier. Of course, that doesn't cover the full cost of eliminating fare. And what the agency said is that they wanted to implement zero fare not by reducing services, although that did end up happening because of the pandemic, but they wanted to implement zero fare by uh, essentially like identifying cost efficiencies and adding additional funding to offset the lost revenue. That's where kind of Kansas City kind of comes in. But as I said, it doesn't cover the full cost. And so because of that, uh, the agency was is kind of looking at a funding gap in terms of lost revenues. And at the same time, it knows that the federal funding it got um, from pandemic relief money is going to run out in a few years. So right now, they're looking for more sustainable long-term funding sources. As they're talking about bringing back FAIR, What are the considerations that they're weighing? One thing they're definitely considering is how much it will cost uh, to ride the bus again. In 2019, it was about $1.50. That was like the base fare. So there's a consideration, do they go back to $150? Who will get to ride the bus for free still? So before they eliminated bus fare entirely, veterans and college students uh, were two groups that come to my mind um, who were able to ride the bus for free. And also, how does the agency ensure that lower income folks, people who really rely on zero fare, aren't hurt by having to pay again. There's also considerations about how fare will be collected. From what I remember before, it was just cash. So there's consideration of do they collect fare from having an app on your phone? Obviously, that comes with its own barriers because not everyone has a phone with those kinds of capabilities. Um, And also there's the question of when do they bring it back and how do they start telling people? There were struggles during the pandemic. They cut some services and also ridership dropped 
How have we seen ridership change over the course of the free fare period? And what are the concerns if they bring back fares? Yeah, so ridership has actually really bounced back uh, post-pandemic, I would say. In October, the KCATA saw about 1 million riders uh, riding the bus, and that's more than last year, and that's more than any of the pandemic years, and it's actually more than the number of riders in October of 2019. So, you know, Which is right before they made fares free. Yes. So the KCATA is seeing its ridership numbers bounce back. At the same time, they've been providing less service. And the agency attributes its increase in ridership to zero fare. So bringing back fare might not be a guarantee that you all those customers convert into paying customers. Exactly. And there might be a large chunk of people that still don't have to pay. And it might mean that the people who ride the bus now, a majority of them still won't have to pay. But we'll have to see what kind of considerations the agency makes. That was KCUR's Madeline Fox and Salisa Kalakal. More people have become doctors over the last decade, but they're not always ending up where they're most needed. The federal government has designated large percentages of Kansas and Missouri as areas without enough healthcare providers. KCUR's Noah Taborda reports medical schools are encouraging students to take an interest in underserved areas while they're still training. Hey, how are you? Good, good, good. All right, I'm Dr. Marwadi. Hundreds of prospective doctors practice interacting with patients at the simulation center each day at Kansas City University. The state-of-the-art lab helps students prepare for different medical scenarios. In one room, students are working with a nauseous patient. More than 1,000 students come to Kansas City University each year, and hundreds more go to nearby medical schools at the University of Kansas and the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Some of them stay local, some of them move out of state, but too few end up in communities that desperately need doctors. Russell Cole is part of the American Academy of Family Physicians Board of Directors and lives in Stillwell, Kansas. We know that about 20% of the U.S. population lives in rural areas. Only about 11% of the physician population is actually in those areas. Two-thirds of all rural areas in the U.S. have a primary care shortage. And some urban areas have shortages, too. Wyandotte County has half as many primary care providers as Johnson County. In urban areas, doctor shortages usually mean huge caseloads for the providers who do practice there and long wait times for appointments. While in rural areas, it looks more like patients driving hours away for care. Medical schools in the Kansas City area are trying to encourage their doctors in training to go where they're needed most. Most of the 1,600 medical students enrolled at KCU each year study in Kansas City, but about one-third learn at the university's Joplin campus. Josh Cox is the executive dean at KCU. He says the Joplin campus is one example of the school's train-and-retain mentality toward encouraging students to stay in the community. And if they take their medical training there, they're more likely to practice clinical medicine after all of their training is accomplished. So the same thing uh, goes here in our Kansas City campus. KCU also partners with federally qualified health centers in Kansas City, which serve low-income and uninsured patients, to give students a hands-on experience in urban areas with doctor shortages so they can provide care in a community they know down the line. KU Med is also trying to train and retain across Kansas. Required rotations for fourth-year students send each prospective doctor to a rural location. The Kansas Medical Student Loan Program goes even further by helping students cover the cost of school in exchange for agreements to practice medicine in an underserved Kansas community after residency. Currently, the program supports 118 providers 
29 of them in Wyandotte County. Associate Dean of Student Affairs Mark Meyer says 60 of 105 Kansas counties got at least one doctor through the program in the last decade. It it is probably one of the longest standing pathway programs from day one of medical school, placing them in an underserved community and getting them to stick there. KU Med is one of the best schools in the country at getting doctors to rural areas, where it sends 12.9 percent of graduates and does better than most schools in getting its doctors to underserved areas, where 18.9% of its graduates go. Russell Cole of the AAFP says medical school efforts are going to pay dividends, but any attempt to keep students in the pipeline to become doctors, and then become doctors in areas of high need, will take time and patience. We're sometimes 7 to 11 years down the road to being able to see the impact of the actions, and I think that's really important to keep in mind because... Well, our ultimate results for a lot of these programs are going to be further down the road. And medical schools don't have final control over where their students end up. Bottom line, it's up to the individual. But programs that introduce the idea of working in rural or underserved areas or partnerships with rural providers offering residency spots can help increase the odds that a student winds up settling in an area of need. For KCUR 89.3, I'm Noah Taborda. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. This podcast is produced by Trevor Grandin and KCUR Studios. It's edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. To read Salisa's reporting on public transit and Noah's story about the shortage of health care providers, visit kcur.org, where you can find more local news from Kansas City's NPR station. If you want to support our show, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps us grow our audience. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.